Hello, this is Zach from way in the future, like six months from when we actually made this episode. But for some reason, every single week we have more listeners to episode number two, Fish, than uh, the current episode. So, let me just come here and say that if this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. We are so very thankful that you want to come and listen to us uh, talk about uh, uh, faith-based movies in a hopefully entertaining and funny way, but this episode is kind of terrible. As a matter of fact, we don't really get good at what we're doing until, you know, episode, I I don't know, The Borrowed Christmas or, or Christmas in Mississippi, uh, uh, some of the really more recent episodes. So please don't judge us based on this episode. If it was up to me, I would have you turn it off and go listen to the most recent episode. But uh, it's a free country, and I'm too lazy to take these off of SoundCloud and 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 put them on YouTube. So enjoy the show if you want to, but please, please, please uh, uh, give us a, another chance once you get to the end of this and go listen to our more recent episodes. They may be more entertaining. Anyways, I'll let you get back to the show, but please listen to what I said. Thank you. Bye. Today on Rotten or Righteous, we answer the question... Fish? Welcome to Rotten or Righteous, a weekly podcast where we look at faith-based media and tell you whether or not it's worth seeing. I'm your host, Zach Geiler, and with me as always is my co-host, the man who is sometimes known as Shadow Biscayne, but you can call him Scott Judge. Scott, how are you doing? I'm good, Zach. Good. Good to be back this week. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. And with us is a very special guest all the way from Guam, but he's working on getting back to the mainland once the Statue of Limitations is up. The only person who is sad that this is an audio-only podcast. The pretty boy of preaching with a jaw stronger than Superman and a forehead wider than my fat waistline, Luke Taylor. Luke, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to bring my forehead to your channel. We're, we're certainly happy that you're with us. So, we all watched the first episode of the television show, The Chosen, which is a series that has been crowdsourced. It's the largest crowdsourcing venture ever in in the history of, of television, and they put out eight episodes for season one, and that's what we're going through week by week, kind of taking apart these episodes, talking about what we liked, what we didn't like, what was scriptural, what was bad, what was just plain cheesy, and at the end, we'll give it a review. Uh, one through five means that it was rotten or terrible, don't waste your time. While 6 through 10, righteous. You should watch it. It's going to be a, a good time. Now, the episode opens outside of a tent, and we're told that we're in Magdala in 2 AD. A man is up. He is coughing, clearly sick, in the middle of the night, and his daughter comes to join him, saying that she can't sleep. He's trying to figure out why his daughter can't sleep, and, and then he points at a big new star in the sky, which kind of obviously gives us a hint of when we're or what time period we're dealing with here, uh, uh, the star in the sky, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's talking about the coming of Jesus. So uh, he's seeing the star. The daughter really couldn't care less about the star. And then she says that she 
can't sleep because she's scared. And then the two recite a verse from Isaiah 43 and verse 1. Why can't you sleep? I'm scared. What? I don't know. Hey, what do we do when we are scared? We say the words. Adonai's words. From the prophet. Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah right. Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Come now. I want to hear you sing. I want to hear your pretty voice. Come. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. That's right. After this loving moment between the father and the daughter, we cut to daylight, and this pretty woman wakes up gasping she's got blood on her hands and it's later revealed that this woman's name is Lilith and this has taken place 28 years after uh, the night in the desert that she spent with her father and then we see a man running through the street with blood on his face and he runs up to a Roman guard and he says that some woman Lilith uh, who has demons inside of her tried to kill him so what do you guys think about this opening scene this is the First scene of The Chosen, we're introduced to the entire show here. Well, I think it's pretty interesting. I, there's always like a fascination with Mary Magdalene. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it seems like in every, uh, the, you know, you read books like The Da Vinci Code and all these, uh, well, a lot of the pictures of the Gospels that we see in the media, there's some fascination with Mary Magdalene and what relationship she had with Jesus. And I thought it was interesting to see that be kind of the highlight of the first scene. And I've also... Uh, heard I've not watched any more than the first episode, but I've heard that that kind of continues on as we go throughout the the series. Yeah, and uh, last week we kind of voiced that there's going to be concern that this is going to focus heavily on Mary Magdalene or uh, Lilith, as she is called. You kind of took away the big reveal there, but that's okay. Dang it. <laughs> we get. <laughs> No, it's all right. We, we we could keep it in. It doesn't matter. Uh, spoiler alert, Lilith is, is Mary Magdalene. But uh, <laughs> that's literally the last thing you find out in the episode. But that's okay. Uh, but it is concerning. Um, whenever uh, a project or a film or a book or a movie, television show, whatever, uh, focuses on Mary Magdalene, to me, that's a giant red flag uh, right there she's like a character of interest and I think the limited information that we have on her and just the biblical text allows her to kind of be expanded by all of these different types of media. But yeah, I agree. It's kind of, uh, makes you does throw up some red flags. I will say that I've, I had to watch this episode three times this week and with each watching my guard was lowered when it came to Mary because like you said, we do have just a couple of verses that explains very few details about this woman. But she was one of the women that came to anoint the body of Christ. So that does open it up to a lot of speculation or a lot of, um, I, I don't know, I think it gives them a license to kind of explore the relationship between Jesus and this woman as long as they don't go down the whole she was Jesus's secret 
wife route like Dan Brown did in the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. I don't fault them for um, kind of exploring that as like a character arc. I think that's definitely an interesting one to explore. One of the neat things I saw with, with how this started is, you know, we have the biblical text, but there's so much more that we don't know exactly how things happen or came about or what what would have been done or seen by everybody that was there. So it's interesting to me to see the perception of what things would have looked like uh, during this first period of time, the setup of the uh, of, of the living quarters that were there. And when you take a look at, at Lilith, uh, you could see the sickness in her. I mean, it, you could tell uh, that she, she was sick. And I thought that was a, a, a good job that they did with the acting there. Um, but, it's neat to me how they start out quoting that verse, Isaiah 43, 1, and how we're going to see that on down even come out even further. Absolutely. I need to stop saying absolutely so much because <laughs> <laughs> I had to cut about 37,322 absolutely's out of the last week's podcast. But uh, you're right. And so after we're introduced to Lilith, spoiler alert, Mary Magdalene, we have the title sequence. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I really liked the title sequence and the theme song. It's probably the best theme song I've heard from any faith-based uh, piece of media that I can think of. And as I watched that probably three or four different times, I, I kept I kept having these mixed feelings. And I think the last time I watched it, I thought, man, I really like this. And there's something about it to me that is just irritating, but something that just really catches my eye. If I didn't know better, Scott, I would say that you were describing our relationship. Annoying, <laughs> but piqued your interest. It's, that's that's 100% right. Yeah, I liked it too. I it was it was actually I made a comment to my wife when I when we were watching it together, and that was that this is an odd song or a different song for a for a theme of like a Bible project. You know, it's is it definitely had a uh, it was a little bit more lively than typically here. But I I liked it. I agree. I liked it. Well, it's actually a, an original song. Uh, called Walk on the Water, in case you didn't get that. She sang it about 400 times. <laughs> but it was an original song called Walk on the Water that was written for the show, and I, I looked up who was the one singing it, and it apparently, I'm, I'm not familiar with this woman's work, but she is a Grammy-nominated Grammy singer. Uh, she was born in Ghana and now lives in Nashville by the name of Ruby Amandfu. After the theme song is over, we are introduced to the next main character in this story, the Pharisee Nicodemus and his wife. He is praying as his cart is pulled through a field by slaves. And then Nicodemus's prayer is interrupted by a slave telling him Romans are riding towards them. Now, one part about this scene that, that really kind of piqued my interest, and it only piqued my interest because I'm in the middle of teaching the life of Christ here, is that uh, he called Nicodemus's wife woman. And I, I, for some reason, a lot of people kind of cling on to the fact that during the first miracle, Jesus calls his mom woman. 
for some yeah. reason, there are yeah. skeptics and people out there that say, well, why is Jesus being so rude to his mom? And then through you know research, you find out that's just what they called women. It wasn't disrespectful. It was just a title. That right there, by this slave calling Nicodemus's wife woman, really kind of leapt out at me that they're actually talking the way, or the, at least the Americanized version of the way these ancient Hebrews would have talked in the first century. Did you did you notice too that when the slave came back to the court that she put uh, put the cloth over her head mm -hmm. uh, at that point in time too and I, that that jumped out at me when I saw that but yeah the the use of woman and you find that in biblical times but you're right they've done their research I still call my wife woman because it's it's biblical so that's why that's the way I refer to Megan I did once called my wife woman but there was and, nothing and new to be learned after that. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, tense music starts to swell as a Roman walks forward, and Nicodemus is greeted by Quintus, a Roman magistrate. And the Roman explains to Nicodemus that he feels that taxes are being unpaid because some Jews are fishing on the Sabbath or on Shabbat, and he wants Nicodemus to deal with that. So now we have the conflict of the first episode, at least Nicodemus's conflict. He's going to have to deal with these fishermen fishing on Shabbat and not reporting their catches and not uh, paying taxes on what they were catching. This scene also had the worst line in the entire episode. Tell me, Nicodemus, what can be under the water and yet never drown? Fish? That was terrible. <laughs> and, then, and then they just left it hanging. Like, there was no... There was, like, yeah. you expected some, like, great revelation from that or something, but there was, it was just nothing. Uh, it, it, we, we talked about this last week, that Nicodemus is played by the only notable actor in the entire project, and he has some of the worst lines, and I feel yeah, bad for him. <laughs> I think that's going to be the name of the episode. <laughs> the name of this episode is just going to be titled... Fish? <laughs> so Quintus goes to Nicodemus and basically tells him that Nicodemus is going to help him collect these unpaid taxes. And if he does that, then Quintus is going to help the Pharisees stay in power. And so right away we see, again accurately, that there is a power struggle that the Pharisees have. They want to keep this power. And in order to keep it in first century Palestine, they're going to have to work with the Romans. And so, although the line is terrible, the uh, implications and, and the, the mood that they're setting between Roman and, and Nicodemus, this Jewish leader, is really good. Yeah, and I thought that they also hit the relationship between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he mentions that they were that they didn't get along, and right. that was true. And I think a lot of people who read the Bible just think, oh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're kind of in it together, and they're buddies, but they're actually not. Yeah, when that Roman guard came back, he actually mentioned uh, Sadducees, mentioned the Zealots, uh, mentioned even the one that was crying in the wilderness. Uh, so you can see the conflict that exists there between all of them as he's bringing that, uh, uh, bringing that point out with Nicodemus. Well, that's interesting mm -hmm. that you brought it up. I, that, that reference to John the Baptizer completely flew under my radar. But now that you mention it, I do remember it. All right, so in the next scene, we are introduced to a young tax collector who will later be revealed to be Matthew, who is meticulously getting ready. After he leaves his house 
In his nice sandals, he immediately steps in a pile of poop. (laughs) (laughs) Let's try that again. After the exchange between Nicodemus and Quintus, we're introduced to a young tax collector meticulously getting ready. And we later find out that this tax collector is Matthew. He takes his time. He's rubbing prunes on his wrist, which, once again, I thought was really cool because I can see that. You know, you don't, you can't go to the store or the market and buy a can of Old Spice. So you're going to have to use something else to keep your stank down. And, uh, old prune. Yeah, they used old prune. Terry Crews was there holding a prune. <laughs> but, uh, so he's getting ready, he puts on these nice shoes. He leaves his house and he immediately steps in a pile of poop on the street, and then reaches in his sack and changes his sandals. Now, I would say that this doesn't track or that this is too much, but they've already uh, portrayed Matthew as this incredibly neurotic character. Like, you see that right from the beginning. He's he's breathing through a sachet that he has so he doesn't have to, to smell the, the city around him. He is uh, really... This this odd character. Um, what do you, what do you think about the way that they portrayed Matthew? I thought he was. I did think he was he was odd and didn't understand why he was getting in that cart with that guy. Is that just because he didn't want to be seen, like walking through the streets after he stepped in the poo poo? Well, well, I I think simply because he was a tax collector, he didn't want to be seen. That was the impression I got that he had some right. fear. And remember, when he got to the office, he was upset that somebody had shown up late to let him in. Uh, uh-huh. And but you're right, he he he's an odd character, and you see him just meticulous, a little neurotic. And I think the fact that he stepped in the poo and then just threw the sandals away and had a brand new pair to put on tells so much about his character. And as I was watching watching Matthew, thinking about who he is, who he was, I thought, man, this makes sense to me. Uh, how they portrayed him with what right. he was doing. And and uh, how he wouldn't have been like, you know, certainly how the Bible portrays tax collectors, that no one likes tax collectors. And uh, I, uh, I I liked I liked that scene and I really bought into who he was or how he was portrayed. I mean, we're not talking about a Roman tax collector here. We're talking about a Jewish man who was taking ridiculous amounts of money from other Jewish people. He was hated. Yeah. And I thought I thought that. um he seems almost like guilty about what he's doing. There's kind of like that yeah. undercurrent when you see his character. And I thought that that made sense when, you know, Jesus comes up to him later and I haven't seen the other episodes, but I know from the biblical text, Jesus comes up to him later and he's like, follow me. And like that invitation is all Matthew needs to walk away from his job. Mm, and it right. seems like that's consistent with that character. Like he, well, like Matthew he comes up later that. In, in the episode, let's save some of this good Matthew talk. I, I think I added a weird time to talk about him because he comes up later and and, and it kind of shows us a little bit better his his outlook on life. But as, as Luke was talking about, after he changes his sandals because they're, they're soiled in poop, which by the way, again, I, I just want to stop and talk about the fact that uh, we, we talk about how Jesus washing the apostles' feet was really one of the more humiliating things a person could do. Stepping in poo, that was an everyday occurrence, and most people didn't have a second pair of sandals to slap on. 
feet were disgusting back then because the yeah. roads were disgusting back then. And, and after seeing that scene too, Zach, feet got a lot more disgusting by then too because every time I Because you went and stepped Jesus, in some poop? Yeah, every time I picture <laughs> Jesus, Dad, I'm just picturing dirty, dusty feet, you know, dirt. But, you know, I watched this and I'm like, these disciples' feet could have been covered in poo. And they probably were. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. There's because there would have been animals walking around. There's there's something here on Guam called Carabao. They're like these uh, cows. They're kind of iconic. They have these curved horns. But when these things get go walk out on the road and they decide that they're going to do their business on the road, the mound of poo that they leave is like a foot by a foot. I mean, it's he, it's huge. And uh, oh, wow. so that's what I imagine: <clears throat> giant pile of poo. Matthew hires a man to sneak him into the market where he works, and immediately the man who is pulling the cart that is going to hide Matthew scolds him for throwing away such expensive shoes. Pardon me, Mr. Public Anus. It's me that don't want to be seen with you, remember? It's Public Anus. I like it the other way, tax man. Hey, 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 hey! It's a month's salary for all my sons combined right now. You just toss them out? These are my property. I do with them as I wish. I pay you to drive. You stiff through trash on your own time. Driving you's a bit of both now, isn't it? <laughs> if any citizen asks about my cargo, I must tell the truth. <laughs> it's the biggest pile of dung in all Capernaum. <laughs> Again, we see that the tax collectors of the first century being Jewish, well, they had really good jobs. Most of them uh, skimmed a little bit off the top. Uh, they weren't suffering in poverty like a lot of Jewish citizens were. And so we see why there would be that hatred. I mean, that Matthew could just throw away a pair of shoes that could feed his family for, for several days. It was just very offensive to that man. I will also say that the driver calling Matthew Mr. Public Anus instead of Anus was one of my favorite things. I didn't catch that. I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, it, that's great. I loved that, that, that there is this give and take. And not only that, but the very next line, he says, you know, if people stop this card, I'm going to have to tell them what I'm, what I'm hauling, the biggest pile of dung in all of Capernaum. <laughs> that is, again, a great line. I love the fact that it's clean, but it's funny at the same yeah. time. There's still some teeth in this show. A lot of times you watch this faith-based media, it's like trying to watch a, a grandma gum down a piece of steak. There's no bite in it at all. But, but here yeah. they're leaving stuff like that in, and I, I appreciated that. All right, so after he gets into this cart, the next scene, Nicodemus is talking to local rabbis in Capernaum, and they're all laughing at Nicodemus' bad jokes. And Nicodemus then moves on to talking about the fish being caught by sinners who are fishing on Shabbat. <laughs> and your sea busts the most exquisite fish. How unfortunate that those who do the actual fishing are unholy, foul-mouthed, given to gambling in secret dens, and even fishing on Shabbat. Can we eat the catch and not be stained by the sins of the catcher? Make no mistake. It is a sin to eat fish caught on Shabbat. What goes into the body of a man defiles him. Why are our Jewish brethren taking their boats to sea on Shabbat? I assure you, the Messiah will not come until this wickedness is 
purged from our midst. What do you guys think of this line? I've got some problems with it from a, a cinematic or storytelling standpoint, but I want to hear your opinions first. I liked it in contrast to Jesus's words. So it seemed like they kind of wrote that line in direct opposition or as a direct opposite to the things that Jesus would come along and say later, because, you know, we, he says, what goes into your body defiles you because it's been touched by sinners. And Jesus is, is saying, that's not, that's not true. It's what you allow to remain inside of you. What's in your heart that defiles you and not what goes into your, into your mouth. So you see kind of like how the Pharisees are creating these rules that didn't exist in, in the Torah or in the Talmud. Well, they existed in the Talmud, but not in the original law of God. And they're kind of setting him up to oppose what Jesus is going to say later on. I wonder if that was part of the uh, uh, part of what was being done there. Although obviously the Pharisees had taught that because Jesus is going to speak against it. I thought it was interesting that he had said, Jesus is not going to come until, uh, you know, that those, those kind of things are straightened out. And, you know, I've, I've long said the Pharisees, uh, their idea of what of what scripture was, the old law, they were so confused about it and with their own thoughts, their own ideas. And in part, that's why they didn't uh, recognize uh, the Messiah when he came. You pointed that out, Luke, that uh, they're setting it up to be in opposition to Christ. I think from a, a strictly entertainment standpoint, that it was way too on the nose. They've done this several times where you know exactly what they're doing. And from from just a script writing standpoint, I really didn't like it. But I I see what they're doing, and I see hopefully the payoff is better than the setup is what I'm trying to say. But uh, you're absolutely right what you were saying. Stop saying absolutely. I want to do it. Absolutely. I wondered about that too. Like, are they, they're put, kind of putting all this stuff out and it's like, if you, if you know the Bible, like you, it's, it's like really obvious to you, you know, but there's probably mm-hmm. a lot of people. And I think I was actually listening to the director who was talking about why he made this and trying to get people interested in the Bible that maybe never had before. They might need that, that's obvious, um, like allusion to yeah. what is going to come in the future. Whereas we're like, Oh, you know, I see this coming. It's right in front of my face. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope as people watch the video that they're going to be able, when they hear Jesus say this, and I assume they will hear Jesus say this. I can't imagine that you haven't put it in or you, you didn't put it in at this point because you weren't going to hear it later. If that makes sense. Uh, that uh-huh. When they hear Jesus say this in, in whatever episode that may follow, that they'll be able to connect back to what Nicodemus was saying at that time uh, so that they can gain a, a teaching and a principle for the difference in what Jesus was bringing and who the Pharisees were. So the local rabbi is busy getting the synagogue ready in the next scene. He's clearly nervous about being around the great teacher Nicodemus. The local rabbi invites Nicodemus into the room where the Torah is kept, and Nicodemus actually compliments the fine Torah room. Then Nicodemus turns around and asks the local rabbi why Jews are taking boats to sea on Shabbat. And the rabbi immediately assures him that he will try harder to stop fishing, or stop the fishing on the day of rest, and then he blames the Romans, saying they do not guard the sea on Shabbat. The Romans believe we do not work on Sabbath, thus they do not patrol. Greed has overcome the fishermen. Or they are just trying to feed their families. I really liked that scene, too, because it kind of showed a comparison between 
Nicodemus who's just trying to make Quintus happy in order to save his own power. At least that's what I was getting right there. You have the rabbi who wants to save his own skin from Nicodemus. And then you have one honest man sitting there going, greed might play a part of it, but also they're being taxed to death. If they're not fishing on Saturday and making some of this free fish, they wouldn't be able to feed their families. I thought, I don't know if you caught it, but in that scene where Nicodemus is being wheeled through the field and that he's stopped by the Romans, I think one of the first things he says is the people, the, well, uh, the I believe it's Quintus comes up to him and he says, why aren't the Jews paying all their taxes? He makes that comment. The Jews are already being taxed to death. Yeah. And then he kind of he, he kind of caves on that once he realizes that his position is is in trouble and kind of bends to the will of the Romans. And so <clears throat> it's interesting that that rab <clears throat> excuse me, that rabbi in the or that worker in the the synagogue there makes that comment and it's kind of like there's the tension there because Nicodemus knows that mm-hmm. and like the two sides of his conscience are kind of right there where the Romans are standing and they're the ones who hold his his position and then there's this rabbi who's communicating something that he knows to be true in his heart and there's like that conflict but he ends up going and siding with the Romans so then a, a Roman centurion comes in and looks around the Torah room and says, impressive, looks like we're not the only ones taxing the people. And again, I love this line because it hints at the hypocrisy and greed of some of the Jewish leadership. And the Roman really, to me, is kind of being, they're evil, they're clearly portrayed as the bad guys, but they're also there to kind of keep the Jewish leadership honest so far in this episode. It's interesting, the interaction that they have between each other is the as the uh, first episode is going, uh, it's quite frequent. So the centurion is actually there because he wants Nicodemus to help with a Hebrew woman who has been causing a disturbance. Nicodemus tries to tell the centurion to take care of it with one of his many guards. But then the centurion tells Nicodemus that the woman needs a holy man. And if the teacher, and if the teacher didn't come, he would burn the red district. He would burn the red district to the ground. And again, I love what the centurion says here. It is not our custom to frequent the red quarter. Perhaps I wasn't clear. Teacher of teachers, you'll accompany me to the red quarter or we'll burn it down with our fire of fires. <laughs> yep. It's just so condescending. It's so disrespectful in like the best way for for a villain to talk, to take that title that Nicodemus earned and he's very proud of, teacher of teachers, and turn it around on him saying, "Well, you could be teacher of teacher all you want, but everything you you own and everything the Jews own can still be destroyed with our fire of fires." It shows that you know, it just shows like why the Jews would have wanted a messiah so bad that was going to free them from the romans because the romans just had them under their thumb and it does give us a good picture of the relationship between the jewish leaders and the romans and again for somebody that isn't a preacher somebody that studied you know uh, first century history and doesn't know the background stuff i think that it really would give a, a good clear picture of what everyday life would be like living in palestine in the first century I think you're right. They just don't care. They just don't care. You're going to do it our way, or you're going to do it our way. So in the next scene, the cart carrying 
Matthew, the tax collector, drops him off at the market. But the problem is, he drops him off on the wrong side of the market. The tax stall, or his office, is on the other side. And the timid young man doesn't want to walk through the crowded uh, city square. Uh, He tells his driver to take him to the other side of the market, but the man refuses. And so Matthew has to walk through the market, and people are just shooting daggers at him with their eyes. You can tell that he is despised by the locals. They mock him, they jeer him, somebody even stops and spits on him as he's walking through. And, And again, you get this clear picture of the amount of hatred first century Jewish citizens would have had towards what they would consider a traitor. It, it felt real. I mean, how they, you're right with the daggers, how they looked at him, spinning on him. And he was literally scared to death. And he portrayed that in his face and in his actions. He is a very good actor. But as he's walking through the market, he's stopped by a blind beggar who clutches onto his robe and asks if he is the Messiah. Again, I get that they're trying to set up miracles that are going to happen. This is just like that line that Nicodemus just said earlier. But it is so on the nose and so distracting to me. I just, I I didn't like it. Wouldn't it make more sense to have him reach out, clutch him, and just say, Hey, can can I get a shekel? You know, I mean, can you give me some money? Why is he grabbing people asking if they're the Messiah? It would, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine there would have been a lot of buzz in that area because John's preaching, right? And it says that all of Jerusalem and and uh, all, all the people in that region are going out to see John, and John's preaching that the Messiah is coming. So, yeah. I, you know, I don't know what it would have been like in <clears throat> in that time, but I thought the parallelism between him grabbing the hem of Matthew's garment, Matthew being somebody who like rips the people off and takes from them, versus mm-hmm. like what the Messiah would actually look like and grabbing the hem of Jesus, who was a giver. And somebody who had mm-hmm. come to, you know, do good for the people. Yeah, yeah, and I hear exactly what you're saying with John the Baptist, and as they alluded to him in the in the first scene, he's out in the wilderness, uh, talking about how the kingdom of God is at hand. I know when I saw this specifically, the very first thing I thought of was uh, John chapter four with uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and uh, she she indicated, I know, I know that the Messiah comes, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And I know that they were looking for, they were thinking about, uh, so many people were, were cognizant of the fact that the Messiah is going to come. And I understand, you know, what you're saying there, Zach, that, you know, is that a, a setup for something on in the future? And, and that really stemmed my thinking uh, with, with the idea of wonder how much that really happened. I wonder how much they were truly talking about, thinking, looking uh, but you know, with, with Matthew, uh, the tax collector going through, I don't know. Uh, but I really, I really wondered how often the people, uh, in the land at that point in time were talking about and waiting for the Messiah to come and what he would look like. Maybe I need to take off my preacher hat when I'm watching this show. You're the only one, Zach. I know. And it just was distracting to me. But anyways, the tax collector eventually makes his way to the booth, but the Roman guard who is in charge of guarding the booth is late. And so Matthew scolds him, and the Roman just kind of steps up to him and reminds him of how dangerous his job is. You're late, Gaius. I know. Could you feel it? Feel what? Market's on fire today. Everybody's on edge. 
All it would take is one person to snap, and you are. Just one person having one bad day may be enough for you to, to not walk out of this market alive. <laughs> yep. And, it's, it's and very I found true. that interesting, too, the way he the way he spoke to the Roman guard. And is that typical? Is that is that natural? I know what he's doing is needed by the Roman government. But to me, there's still a level of uh, authority between uh, the tax collector and the, and the Roman guard. And the Roman guard would have authority over the tax collector. So for the tax collector to talk to him like that, at least in the movie, uh, it made me wonder how, what the accuracy of that would be. Absolutely. <laughs> I wonder why the Romans outsourced that work. Like, why didn't they just do it themselves and kind of get rid of that middleman? I, I don't know if it's because, like, they needed a Jew who who knew the, the community of people so that they would actually get the fair amount of taxes. Because you got to think, like, it'd be so easy to cheat on your taxes back then or not show up. Right? I don't know how the system worked, but... Like, why did they need a Jew to perform that work instead of just doing it themselves? Because they could have just demanded the money from the people, it seems like to me. Uh, I think it's an image thing. I mean, the Romans have kind of stepped in. You still have some, uh, you know, you hear the stories. They would have heard the stories uh, of, of the days of David and Solomon and even Saul about when they were in power, that this land used to, to belong to them. They would have been told about Joshua's conquests and everything. And here you have the Romans coming in, and they want to give an illusion that they're letting the Jews have a lot of control. They're not. Yeah, that's true. They, but they want to give them the illusion that they're having control, and by having a Jew collect the taxes, that makes, well, it makes that Jew the bad guy and not the Romans. Mm-hmm. True. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, so there might, there might not be as much of a risk for the Jews to rebel if it's the Romans collecting the taxes. I think it's a good point. So in the next scene, Nicodemus and the Jewish leaders are walking through the red district, escorted uh, by a Roman guards. And they're looking around and they're appalled as they look at the peddlers and prostitutes on the side of the street. And one scene that they pass that really kind of uh, stood out to me as they're walking through and they're trying to show how bad this area of town is, is you see two dirty slaves and you can tell a slave because they're wearing all white in the show but these two slaves were standing up on the trade block with chains around their neck and they were wearing right white but it was very grungy and dirty they were clearly having a, a bad time and although slavery was still prevalent and it may not have been as uh bad as american slavery in the 1800s they were still slaves and I like that they portrayed that, that, you know, modern translations translate doulos, uh, the Greek word for slave into servant over and over and over again. And, and we lose kind of the um, we, we might lose kind of the idea of what it meant to be a slave gets kind of lost in translation there when we don't call it slave, but we call it servant. But these people were working for people against their will. They may have had good masters, they may be paying off a debt and are just in slavery for a little while, but they were in very real slavery. And I, I felt like when they went down to the Red District, it was appalling. And I think it needed to be appalling. And I think it needed to have that that image of uh, uh, everybody that was around him, the poor, the sick, the slaves, 
I mean, it was it was atrocious to, to me to see them. And I go back to something that Nicodemus said when when they first came to talk to him about going there. He said, we we don't go there. We don't go there. Well, we're going to find out, uh, uh, you know, I think I think as we watch this this film, that that's exactly the kind of place that Jesus would go. That's probably the first place that he would go. Man of God, uh, Nicodemus, man of God. Uh, we don't go there. We, we, we got no need, you know, our job is here. And it was, it was a horrific place, horrible. And you could see, it's another time that I could really feel the anxiety and the disgust on somebody as they were, well, Nicodemus, as he was in that area and he was as uncomfortable, uh, as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Nicodemus, they reach the the house of the demon-possessed woman, and the guard tells Nicodemus to go in, and Nicodemus just has had enough of this guy. Listen, I agreed to Quintus's request. Not a demand, because he should not demand anything of me. To stop Shabbat fishing, which was already our law, and by doing so was not a violation of my practice. And I will try to help this woman, even though it falls outside of my purview. But do not think of me as a tool to fix Roman problems. I will not continue to use my position of religious influence to benefit those who look down on my people, whether it's you or even someone like Quintus. So, I will perform this task, but I want it noted for your superiors. This is an exception! It really shows Nicodemus's character that yes. he's willing to bend a little bit in order to kind of keep the peace with Quintus and everything else. But at the same time, deep down inside, no matter how much he's willing to bend, he still has a good heart. He's still kind of being a Pharisee for the right reasons. He wants to be a teacher of the people. Yeah, and that definitely comes out as we move on through even this episode. Again, they show this relationship between the Romans and the religious leaders because at the end of this big speech where he's saying, I'm, I'm done being your guys' errand boy. I am the teacher of teachers. And the Roman just goes, So can we go now? He just brushes oh, yeah. him off. He's just like, yeah. okay, that's nice. Let's go. It's interesting to me that they can absolutely care less about what they're saying, but they give them the time to say what it is they want to say. Yeah, I mean, that that is... A definition of what the Romans did, which is why they were able to keep their empire so, or their their vast empire for so long, is they let the leaders feel like they had some semblance of control. And by doing that, it kept them malleable. Yeah, and it truly meant absolutely nothing. All it was was hot air that they were hearing. (laughs) They don't care. They're Romans. Why do we care? The next scene is. An introduction to another new character, a fisherman by the name of Simon. He is fighting, and he looks to his brother Andrew, who holds up a finger. He's on the ground moaning in pain, and the man he is fighting happens to be his brother-in-law. It becomes obvious that they're fixing the fight. Andrew tells him how much longer he has to continue the fight, and Simon immediately jumps up unharmed. And during the fight, he says the cheesiest line in the entire show. <laughs> That's why they call me Wine Hands, because of what I do to your liver. He says, Wine why, do you th- 
why do you think they call my fist swine? Because of what they're going to do to their liver, or to your liver. And I was... I was willing to jump on this and just drive it to the ground during this recording, but then about two minutes after the scene, Andrew calls him out on it. Wine hands? Sounded more clever in my head. And I loved yeah. that. That was great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wine hands? <laughs> even, even they knew it was bad. I bet I bet the writer wrote that in. He's like, that was so bad. We got to write it back and make fun of it. But Simon gets the upper hand in this fight until his other brother-in-law comes in and sucker punches him. And he falls to the ground and they lose their bet. Then Simon and Andrew are on the shore of Galilee. Simon is complaining. I love this too. Simon is complaining that his opponent cheated in order to win the fight that he and Andrew were trying to fix. <laughs> that, that's... That's a very Simon thing to do. Yeah, let me let me ask you guys what what is your thoughts about how uh, Simon Peter was portrayed in that and uh, uh, his character there and uh, just what what were you guys thoughts about how he was portrayed? I thought he was you know honestly it wasn't my favorite portrayal that I've ever seen of Peter, um, but I don't have any reason for like disliking it like it, you know because everyone imagines the Bible characters differently somewhat in their head like we've all got yeah. pictures of like. Where, what these places look like and what these characters look like. And I thought there was nothing inconsistent about it. And his, his, um, you know, his character of just being like really straightforward, really, uh, I, I thought it fit, you know, it, it could fit. It's like, it's one imagination. It's not necessarily my imagination of it, but I, I enjoyed watching what somebody else thought of Peter. I, I, I don't like, I don't like the actor who plays Peter, but I like how Peter's written in the show. I think that if they got... What, what uh, don't you like about the actor? It's kind of like what you were saying, that he doesn't do anything wrong, but I just, I don't know. I, I just don't think he's the right, he's not a bad actor. I just don't think that he's the right person to play Peter, in my mind, in my imagination. Yeah. Yeah. But I think if it was a different actor who was playing it, I don't know, maybe a little bit more cockier, maybe uh, a little bit more jovial then I'd like yes. it more than, than what we saw, but they definitely wrote Peter the way I imagined Peter. Mm -hmm. I've seen, I've seen, uh, well, it's like superhero movies, you know, you get these different actors and it's like one of them is what you have in your head and one of them's not. So, you know, Tobey Maguire is the best Spider-Man, but, um, no, you know, this guy's just not the best Peter. You're, you're wrong. He is. Tom, Tom Holland's oh, no. way better than Tobey Maguire. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Tobey Maguire can't act. In like teenage girls act? Uh, no, I'm sorry, but in Seabiscuit, uh, the horse was a better actor than Tobey Maguire. If I wanted, <laughs> if I wanted to watch a cardboard cutout pretend to be a superhero, then Tobey Maguire would be the way to go. The man looked like he was 45 when he was 20. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm a high school. I'm a high schooler, but I also have an ulcer. I got to take care of later. Um, the Peter, this act, this actor is like the Tom Holland of Peter. He's like right. He's, he's the Tobey Maguire of Peter. It's how I would picture Peter, though. I mean, just kind of, kind of jovial, not taking much too serious. Uh, you know, they're in a fight, having fun, joking around. The bets going on, and you see Andrew, uh, which I thought was interesting, was a lot more serious than than Peter. And we'll see that develop in the show as well. We find out that they're in danger of losing their boat and homes because of what they owe in taxes. 
Simon immediately jumps on the boat, and even though it's Shabbat, pushes out into sea to try to make ends meet. We're back at Lilith, a.k.a. Mary Magdalene's village, and Nicodemus is trying to get information as the demoniac is shouting above. Finally, everything is ready for them to go in and try to cast the demon out. Nicodemus goes in and says some words and waves his, uh, his, his... Sensor? His magic juju beads. Waves his, his sensor around, and it's in vain. The, the demon turns around and says... And they flee. They run away in terror. I I appreciated the way that this woman played being demon possessed. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if what Nicodemus was saying is part of um, the Jewish writings, the extra biblical Jewish writings, and how they dealt with demon possession. I actually looked into that for the, the Matthew study that I've been doing, and. Because there's a statement that Jesus makes in the Gospels. He says, if you accuse me of casting out demons by Beelzebul, then who do your sons cast out demons? And I thought, that's interesting because I didn't know that the Jews attempted that. And if you go back, like you were saying, into those those extra, the, you know, the Talmud, the mission of those oral traditions, the Jews actually had like this whole ceremonial process around how demons were supposed to be cast out. And there were incantations that were supposed to be said, and incense that was supposed to be burned. And so I thought in light of having just done that research, when Nicodemus is like asking for materials and he's going in there and he's saying all these things like that actually lines up pretty well with Jewish history. I saw in the uh, extra, some extra information on the show that they had a Jewish rabbi who Hmm. was helping as uh, consulting with the show. And so maybe, you know, he, he filled in some of those details for him. It reminded me a lot of the exorcist or that idea that we have of, Catholic priests going in and casting out demons with the holy water and the power of Christ compels you and all that other stuff. And you wonder where in the world did they get that? Well, if they were just stealing from Jewish tradition, that'd make a lot of sense. Talk a little bit about the acting in that scene. I thought it was outstanding. I kind of felt like Nicodemus came into the room like he has never, ever been able to rid someone of a demon before, and he was scared to death to do it. He thought, what I'm about to do is simply impossible. And she, with her with her moaning, with her facial expressions, when she turned around and looked at Nicodemus, it was outstanding. Absolutely. Uh- Absolutely. <laughs> So in the next scene, Simon walks into his house and his wife is waiting for him, and she acts angry that Simon beat up her brothers. Simon. Oh. Hello, love. Don't you hello love me? Why did you beat up Jehoshaphat? What? My own brother. He attacked me. Again. He needs to know the husband of his sister is strong. Hey, but Andrew had no right to jump Abraham from behind. Where are you getting this? But eventually, she can't hide that she finds it, well, hilarious. (laughs) My brothers, they are fantastic storytellers, no? Tellers of fantastic stories, yes, they are. They went into such great detail. You must have really given them a pounding. Well, I was doing okay till Abe came out of nowhere. Cost me and Andrew a lot of money. Oh, no. They shouldn't cheat you like that when you are also cheating. All right. And I really like this scene because if anyone was going to marry someone like Peter, it would have to be someone 
who has a sense of humor, and they play that very well. I like the way they humanize the characters because a lot of times we read the Bible and it's like it's just a character and we see them as like a snapshot in time and we don't we don't fill in some of those details. I know preachers try to do that and it's one of the things that can really bring a sermon to life. But this really helps be able to see it and you know hear the characters talking and see their surroundings. The only reason we even know that Peter was married is because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Yeah. yeah. And then he divorced her so he could be Pope. That's that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> she asks Peter how fishing was going, and Simon kind of steps around answering that question, and he doesn't say, well, fishing's going bad, but he says that he's on to something big. She said that's good, and she asked Peter to go and wash himself because he stank, and then they were going to go to the synagogue. Then in the next scene, we're back with Lilith. We're back with Mary Magdalene, and she is suffering. She's lying in a ditch in a dirty alley. She, Then we have a flashback to her father quoting Isaiah 3-1 again. But she comes to in this alley, and she is just downright defeated. She is bruised, bloodied, and limps down an alley into her home to see that she has just destroyed it. She flashes back again and remembers the day her father died when she was just a little girl. Then in the present, she's weeping, and she finds this doll that her father gave her, and inside the doll is this small scroll with Isaiah 53 verse 1 written on it. And she's trying to read it, but as she's reading it and trying to use the the Bible to strengthen her and the, the scriptures to strengthen her, she can't help but think of these terrible things that are happening to her and have happened to her. And she remembers a time when a Roman soldier came and raped her. And she continues to weep and trying to read the verse, but she just can't get through it. She's lost her faith in this moment. And she's frustrated and her pain is too much, and she tears the paper into pieces. This was a powerful scene, and the actress played it perfectly. And we've all been in situations when uh, we're trying to deal with how bad uh, something happened in our life. We're trying to deal with how could God let this happen, and without coming straight out and having Mary Magdalene say, how can God let this happen, she she portrayed it in a way that was really powerful and made me feel really uh, my heart went out to her in that moment yeah extremely extremely sad for her and all the feelings that she was going through and you could almost see a, a woman that is just emotionally has hit rock bottom uh, mm-hmm. just sadness because of her defeat and there's no way to overcome these things that are going on with her and she's just going to be stuck with them forever So we stay with Mary in the next scene, and she goes and knocks on a door to a tavern. She's let in, and she sits at the bar, and the bartender greets her, and clearly they're good friends, and he calls her Lily. Then he gives her some sort of beverage to try to help her feel better. She tells the bartender that her episodes are getting worse, and not even the leader of the Pharisees can help her. She's given up. I mean, she thinks if, if, if Nicodemus can't cast out these demons, then nobody is going to be able to. And so she gives the bartender her doll that her father uh, uh, gave her and told her to give the doll to one of his nephews because she doesn't need it anymore. And she drinks the liquid the bartender gave her and tearfully says thank you and leaves. It's interesting to me to have 
been to work to have worked in the field of mental health for about 20 years, uh, particularly with a lot of people who suffer from depression. And there's some certain things that you take a look at for people that uh, are kind of at that lowest of low. And one of them is giving away their prized possessions. Uh, another one is feeling like nothing's important anymore and things just don't matter. It's night. Nicodemus and his wife are preparing for Shabbat dinner. He's clearly disturbed by what he saw at Mary Magdalene's. And his wife tells him to get it together, basically, and... and put his game face on because where they're going, people are going to expect him to perform. And his faith was shaken too. I think Nicodemus thought that he was going to be able to go in there, say the words. I mean, he's teacher of teachers and he failed uh, and he doesn't want to perform. He then tells his wife to look in a mirror. What do you see in the mirror? <laughs> it is a cheap glass. I can barely make out anything at all. Sometimes... I wonder if what we can know of Adonai and the law is just as blurred. What if we're not seeing the whole picture? What if it's more beautiful and, and more strange than we can ever imagine? Now, of course, he's talking about types and anti-types and prophecy being a shadow of the things to come. Nicodemus is prepared to meet the Messiah at this point. Yeah, and I, I think he's seen a time of failure, and he knows it, and he's troubled by it. And I, I think for him, as, as all of us do, we see it a time of failure, a, a time for deep reflection to make sure that we've got our, our uh, uh, mindset on as it should be. We've got our heads on straight, and we're doing what we need to do. I think that's the case with Nicodemus. Uh, he, he felt helpless when he went in to help this woman, particularly after seeing her and, and hearing what he heard. Uh, and he feels like he's failed. Then his wife goes, nah. That is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. It might even be blasphemy. It was just a thought. And you will never utter those thoughts in public. A man is free to question in his heart. Then leave I... it in your heart. This is a serious engagement. They expect an erudite teacher, not a doubting, blaspheming fool. This is my favorite scene, I think, in the whole episode, because I think it's so representative of the struggle that a lot of, not only Christians, but also people who are employed in the service of the Lord and what they go through sometimes. So Nicodemus has questions about what he believes, why he believes it. Is is there something more that he's missing? And he's not allowed to, his wife actually condemns him for expressing those questions and doubts because he's supposed to have all the answers. I feel like there's a lot of times when people, maybe it's preachers or somebody who's, who's working in the church, maybe they have those questions as well, or even church members have those questions but they are forbidden from expressing that because they are supposed to, to be a person that has answers. They're supposed to be a person who kind of toes the line on, on what is to be believed. And she suppresses that desire inside of them and kind of brings him back. And eventually he talks himself back into it. He talks yeah. himself back into, oh, I, okay, I am the teacher. I do have the answers. Nothing could be done for this woman. But and I think a lot of times we do the same thing is that we have questions, people people aren't open to hearing those doubts that we may have, and so we just talk ourselves back into continuing as we always have. 
So then we kind of have this smash cut scene where we see where all of our main characters and what they're doing. Matthew is standing on a corner looking nervous as he starts to walk through people again. Andrew is putting a money bag in his belt as he leaves his house. Simon looks at his wife, who's still sleeping in bed before leaving the house. And then we have Nicodemus sitting in front of his students. Your first thought might be that I should never have set foot in the red district at all. And I would say you are probably correct. Often, we make decisions in haste in our desire to correct a lost soul. But how to explain what happened when I was there? Brothers, when we follow God's law to the letter, God is alive through us. Would you agree, people? Yes, Rabbi. Yes, and yes. he lives through you, and you, and you, if you follow his law. Now, imagine, if you can, one who heeds only wickedness for a lifetime. Demons root in wicked souls as pigs in filth. A possession like this was fatal. And souls such as hers, sadly, are beyond all human aid. I don't know how a person became possessed by demons. I don't think we're, we're given that information. But when I heard him say that, I couldn't help but think of Job and his friends, where he's trying to come up with some excuse, whether it's the right one or not, to why he failed. It wasn't that he wasn't powerful enough or spiritual enough. It was that she was so bad that only God could have drawn them out, which he said uh, earlier. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Uh, you see the, the human side of him where he starts to ask those questions, but then his wife really encouraging him, pressing him, pushing him uh, to think, hey, you're, you're, you're the one that has to have all this, and it's not your fault, that he goes back into believing that, and, and he simply blames her. It's not my fault. And, of course, when we take a look at we take a look at humbling ourselves and we take a look at we take a look at the reflection such as he was having we have in and of ourselves it's good for us to know i think as luke was saying we can't have all the answers we don't have all the answers that sometimes we need to search even when we think we're in a position where maybe we think we have all the answers we don't and he wasn't going to be caught not having all the answers particularly as the teacher of teachers when he got back in front of the group that he was going to speak to so the next scene, we see that Lily is crying again as she's walking along the cliff or along the uh, cliff's edge. Clearly, she's about ready to commit suicide. She's preparing to jump, but then she drops the torn pages of that little scroll with Isaiah forty. Uh, what was it? Forty-seven one or forty-two one? Forty-three one. Forty-three one. I knew it was somewhere in there. Off the edge. But before she jumps, she looks up and sees a dove flying, and she decides to follow the dove. We don't have to discuss this in detail, but I thought that was really dumb. I, yeah. I mean, I mean, I get what he was trying to do, but that was dumb. The dove was dumb. I agree, and it didn't really go anywhere. Like she just followed the dove, and because like I felt like that could have been done. The, the, the spirit of God way. was taking her back to the Capernaum Cheers Bar, which is yeah. what I'm going to refer to that bar from now on. That's great. <laughs> Simon and Andrew are walking together. And Simon asks if he can talk to the tax collector. Andrew doesn't trust him to talk to Matthew. Again, good dynamic here of two brothers arguing. 
people are lined out uh, or are lined up in front of the tax booth as Matthew keeps record of the people paying their taxes. You can tell he's uncomfortable. He's clearly a germaphobe or has suffering with OCD here. And Simon and Andrew walk up, and Matthew explains that their tax is delinquent, that they actually owe 60% uh, more than what they originally owed. Now, they can't pay what is owed. They only can come up with enough money to cover half of it. Matthew says, well, they can cover the other half by what they put up for collateral, but that just so happened to be their boat. Without a boat, they have no livelihood. Simon tells Matthew uh, that they don't have to pay because they have a deal with Quintus. Matthew warns that he will verify what he is saying with Quintus, and if Simon is lying, obviously he's going to be in trouble. But Simon assures him there won't be trouble and asks for Andrew's money pouch back. So again, this is extra-biblical, but I really like the conflict that they're setting up and how, how awkward this group of people are going to be, at least at the very beginning. I like that... that Simon and Andrew are going to have history with Matthew that they're going to have to overcome. Yeah, which probably would have been in the case because they all lived in the same town, so they all would have known each other. Right. I just I want to point out too that in 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 New Testament times, in first century, not only first century, but in olden times, you, you had this system of the weight and measures, and people would always cheat on the weight and measures. You know, you'd 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 put in more weight to to, to weigh something, you put in less weight to weigh something, but the one that was you know, the, there would always be the one that was selling that would be able to receive. My favorite weight and measure system is what Matthew did when he got the money, because he simply held it in his hand <laughs> yeah. and said, oh, well, this is enough for this much. How did he know that? Uh, <laughs> there, there was no measurement there. There was no counting there. He had no idea. He didn't even know if there were shekels that were in the bag. Uh, it, it, it could have been it could have been sand. Uh, who who knows? But I found that interesting that, that Matthew could say, well, this is this much. How do you know? I thought they were playing off the fact that he was a germaphobe, that he didn't want to touch dirty money. But, and you're very, and you're correct too, that he was kind of taking people at their word, which was yeah. kind of naive of Matthew. So Simon and Andrew go to Capernaum Cheers. This tavern, the same one that the demoniac woman was in earlier. And Simon tells Andrew what happened when he went fishing on Shabbat. Well, fishing didn't exactly go like I planned the other night. What's that got to do? I caught nothing. Net after net after net empty. I catch a breeze around the point and all of a sudden I know why the nets are empty. A merchant fleet, six boats across, netting everything. What do you do? I follow them. Maybe I'd catch them sleeping, snatching that during cleanup, but it didn't work. Of course it didn't. Desperate times, yeah. I even anchored and swam in thinking maybe I could get scraps, but they loaded up like clockwork. Had carts with mules ready to move. So I sail home, dock up, and wouldn't you know, this sniveling Roman standing on shore. I couldn't believe it. They never bothered patrolling on Shabbat. No, no. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't even bother trying to run. Good idea, considering how you run. Anyway, as he approaches me, I'm trying to figure out why he's even there. Why they, they don't care about any of our rules. But then I realize they don't get the tax because we don't report any Shabbat catches. So I tell him, if he took me straight to Quintus, I'd let them know who caught more in one night than the guy they're arresting catches in a week. Wait, 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 wait. So, 
you offer to turn in fishermen? No, not fishermen, merchants. And guess who walks up behind me? Guess. Quintus. <laughs> He's thorough, I guess. So yes, we talked, and what I said to Matthew was real. I don't like it. It's dangerous. Yeah, well, so is sleeping outside. Besides, what's a merchant ever done for you? So what? They are... They are our people. We're clearing the way for the little we. guy. Leveling the playing field, yeah. We. You will be cursed if you inform on them. We? Not doing anything. Andrew, that's fine. Better get moving, though, if you want to catch the taxman. Might still be enough daylight to get out of the house before they take it. One thing I found interesting about this scene is it plays the superstition that uh, Andrew has. You're going to be cursed for turning in Jewish merchants. In the next scene, Matthew and a Roman guard go to Quintus to see if Simon and Andrew's stories was true. The Roman escorting Matthew reminds him that if those Hebrew sea rats were lying, Quintus will have them killed and collect their tribute from you. Not much to say about that. Lilith is still following the dove. She is following this bird to Cheers, the Capernaum Tavern. And as she approaches the door, she is shoved by a flustered Andrew leaving. Lily is at the bar wallowing in self-pity. A man comes up and tries to proposition her, and the bartender sends him away. Another stranger comes up to the bar, and Lilith and the stranger lock eyes. This is Jesus. We are 50 minutes into a 52-minute episode and a show about Christ before we get our first look at Jesus. And he looks the way Jesus should show up. He was a Middle Eastern man. And he places her or his hand gently on Mary Magdalene's. Mary pulls back her hand and flees from the tavern. But the stranger stops her by shouting her real name. Mary. Mary of Magdala. And she turns around, asking how he knows her. And then the stranger quotes Isaiah uh, 43.1 and places the hands on the side of her head. Mary gasps and weeps, and then they're embraced by this man who has healed her. Once again, the third time I watched this was the only time tears came to my eyes. I, I really felt the love Jesus had for her. How and, and, and it showed how he knew her. Because how else would he know that very deep personal uh, fact that this that verse was her and her father's verse? I, I think that was very that was a good introduction to Jesus. And you see her in yeah. You know, Jesus isn't walking into the world to save people who are already okay in life, mm -hmm. you know. And so she's kind of reached like the the point at which she's got nothing left. She's like, just give me some alcohol so I can drown my sorrows because I know that no one's going to be able to fix my my issues. And then that's when Jesus uh, enters her life. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. That's when mm -hmm. Jesus is first uh, considered as the, the solution to their problems. So, yeah, it was a beautiful scene. Jesus is vampire-like. He can turn into a dove and then pop into Jesus when he's needed. Um. Wait, is that supposed? Is that what the dove is supposed no, to be? Is no, like no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I, I hope not. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like to the tavern, right? And then Jesus is yeah. just there. I paid particular attention to the acting, and the scene we're talking about is unbelievably moving. And 
again, for these actors, you can see on their faces the feelings that they go through. Mm-hmm. And for Mary Magdalene at this point, when, when Jesus touches her head, and you can see almost like the relief is leaving her or that she's relieved. Like at that moment, she just uh, um, almost kind of compresses just a little bit. You can, she, she portrays that as he did that. Just instantaneous, absolute relief. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, she's at peace and harmony with herself. I was listening to an interview with, with the lady who played Mary Magdalene and the director was interviewing her and was talking about how, how it must have been difficult to do all those emotional scenes because they're not necessarily filmed sequentially. And so yeah. you've kind of got to like get into that character. And sometimes you have like five or six takes. So yeah, I'd say the acting was pretty good there. Yeah. I mean, I, there was really nothing that really stuck out as horrible, bad acting. Like it didn't look like it was a self-funded project. They, they did a mm. very good job. All right. That was the first episode. Now, gentlemen, before we get into the ratings, I have a surprise segment called oh, no. Random Bible Trivia, Luke versus Scott. <laughs> oh, great. What I have done is come up with 10 Bible questions that span the spectrum from very difficult to very easy. And we're just going to go back and forth to see which one of you knows more about the <laughs> book that you proclaim every Sunday. Now... Scott, because you are my regular co-host, you can go first. <laughs> can I call a friend? No. Call the audience? And, and, no, and you, you get your question. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong. I'll tell you the answer. There's no stealing questions or anything. Okay. All right, Scott, your first question. What is the name of the codex that contains the oldest <laughs> copy of the Latin Vulgate? Uh, D... Codex D? Yep, why not? <laughs> you're not going to believe this, Scott. But you're wrong. Um, yeah. it's... <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce this word, but it's Codex Amia Tennis or something along those lines. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, That's, yeah, that, that one. Absolutely. All right, Luke. Are you what, ready? For wait. You? What does that? What does that question have to do with our our discussion here? Or is this just like this is just a fun little game I added yes, in at the yeah. end? <laughs> Luke, uh, what is the name of the collection of sixty six books that combine the Hebrew and Christian holy texts? Wow. The Bible. Correct. <laughs> Luke is up one to nothing. Yes. Codex Bible. Okay, Scott. In most English translations, how many verses include something about feet? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'll give you I'll give you a range of, of, of 10. If you can get it within 10, I'll give it to you. Feet. Uh, 27. Gotta be it. Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. 113. Wow. The most famous, see? of course, is Leviticus 8 and 23 that says Modus, or Moses slaughtered it, took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. That's right up there with John 3.16. All right, Luke, your next randomly generated question. I'm ready. 
Name a book of the Bible that begins with the 18th letter of the alphabet. Oh, no. Hold on. Luke, I'm going to uh, need an answer here. I, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm... What is that, Q? Mm, no. There is a right answer to this. No, I mean, is, is, the, is the letter no. Q? Q would be the 17th letter in the alphabet. Yeah, which would make R... You know, like Ruth, like Ruth, the that's, that's true. I I'm gonna go Revelation. Correct. Look at that. Two to nothing. <laughs> All right, Scott. Your next randomly generated Bible question is this: What biblical name means swift is the booty, <laughs> <laughs> or speedy is the prey? Swift is the booty. Or speedy is the prey. <laughs> I think that was Jehoshaphat. Mayher Shalahashbaz. Ah. From Isaiah oh, 8 yes. and verse 3. I should have known that. That was like your favorite word back in school. All right, Luke, <laughs> your next randomly generated question is this. What's the first book of the New Testament? <laughs> what was the name that Jesus gave to Simon Peter? That would be... Cephas. Correct. I would have also accepted Peter. Okay. Scott, who was, without looking it up, who was Jesus's paternal great grandfather? (coughs) Paternal great grandfather. Uh, His name was also Joseph. His name was Mathan. Ah. So now we are up four. To nothing. To z- to or no, three to nothing. All right, Luke, your second to last question. Who wrote the gospel, Luke? Oh. <laughs> this is horrible. Yeah. I protest. I believe that was Jehoshaphat. Is that your final answer? <laughs> yep. Correct. It was Luke. Good job. Okay. <laughs> Four to nothing. Scott, here's your last question. This is your well, chance to get one point on the board. This is going to be brutal. What was the name of Pharaoh, or what was the name Pharaoh gave to the patriarch Joseph? Ugh. Joseph. Zaphanath Paneah. Ah. <laughs> you know what? I think that was a question on a Hebrew history test Luke, we had one time. Your final question to get a perfect score for the first time randomly generated, totally fair, unbiased Bible bowl. <laughs> Besides Jesus, who is your favorite person in the Bible? Mm, that might be Peleg. <laughs> that is Good correct. Good answer. Peleg it is. Peleg, yes. All right, and that concludes our first ever edition of random Bible <laughs> trivia that is totally unbiased and random. That worked out to be more humorous than I could have ever hoped it would. That was fantastic. Hey, who was Peg Leg anyway? He was a soccer player. <laughs> Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's the time you've all been waiting for, and God bless you, because this episode is shaping up to be just ridiculously long. 
Luke, being the guest, we'll go to you first. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, how would you rate the first episode of The Chosen? I am going to give this an 8. I think reasons being, I think it's good to see high-quality Christian content finally going a little bit more mainstream. I've seen that kind of in the theaters, too, which is nice. And I thought the production quality was good. I thought the acting was, they had pretty good actors. It wasn't like terrible, uh, you know, that traditional Christian acting. I thought the story was pretty good. The writing could be a little better. Uh, some of the scenes could be a little better, but I thought overall it brought the Bible to life. And did. Zach, I'm also going to give it an eight. Uh, I was very impressed with that first episode. Uh, I really appreciated the, the storyline again. There's liberties that are taken within the perception of how things would have happened. Uh, but I think they're telling a good story right now. And it's interesting to see, uh, going to be interesting to see how these develop. I was very, very appreciative of some of the actors and some of the scenes in which they truly just came to life for me. And I could feel uh, their feelings and their emotions as they were on their face. Uh, so far, I think there's some soundness that's being taught. And uh, I uh, just really, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, give it an eight, and I look forward to the next one. No, I'm going to give it an eight, too, and I'll tell you why I didn't give it a ten. Here's the two things that made me not give it a perfect score. Number one, the dove lost yeah. the entire point. The dove was stupid. <laughs> it was absolutely stupid. It made Jesus seem like he was a vampire that could turn into a dove instead of a bat. I'm not digging that. Uh, and number two, I docked an entire point just for one line. And that line was, fish? Fish? I, fish? I, I, I'm sorry. I, that was so bad. The the other really cheesy line, they redeemed themselves by calling them out on it. Uh, but uh, tell me, Nicodemus, what is under the water but doesn't drown? Fish? Uh, so, yeah, we're going to give it an eight. So there you have it, folks. The first episode of The Chosen is up two points from its previews. Our previews, I think we averaged out at a six. But Ooh. it is officially righteous. First episode of The Chosen at an eight. Luke, in three words or less, tell me what to be like Christ is. It is... I only have one word left. Thank you, Luke. That was all the time we it... had. Oh, it's a YouTube channel where we do Bible study, and right now we're going through a study of the old, whole New Testament. We're halfway through Matthew, so it's out there on YouTube, and we have a website as well. And there's resources out there for Bible study and free ebook if you want that ebook. And let's see, my wife also writes on on the blog out there for women, and she has a Facebook group that she ties into it, private Luke. group. Luke, it was a pleasure to have you. I appreciate you. I love you. Got any final words? I feel like I'll be back primarily because I was, I did so well at Bible trivia. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> you're the new co-host. Really, really <laughs> Seriously. If you had, if you had better internet, I'd make you the co-host in like a second. Scott, that was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love you guys too. And I miss you from preaching school, being on the other side of the world, miss seeing your faces. And I was glad I got to see you at the uh, lectureship. E even though I had to listen to Zach speak, um, yeah, it's good to see you. Listen, and Me all... Megan thinks you're Megan thinks you're like the funniest guy on earth. Now, I know that's weird. That's I, bad. I don't. I don't like. I don't even find you funny, even even at all. So, but <laughs> I don't even <laughs> like you. 
Listen, there's a reason why we do this audio is because the only thing I have over you is a better sounding voice. If everything else, I fall woefully short. Intelligence, looks, everything else. So we're going to keep this audio only. But I do appreciate you. You're a good friend. You're doing good work out there. Luke, take care. It's great getting a chance to talk to you. I love you. I miss you guys. And uh, look forward to seeing you hopefully sometime soon. Thank you again, Luke, for being on our second episode. Thank you, listener, for listening to all of this. Thank you, Scott, for something. Um, (laughs) No, I appreciate you too, and uh, I look forward to continuing this project with you. Uh, Tune in next week. We're going to have Andrew Beasley come and, and talk about episode two. But to have this premonition from the white dove that would lead her away, and uh, I mean, if they would just take, I mean, really, you have to ask the question: When doves cry, are you going to follow them? (laughs) Yes, only if there's purple rain.